Let's warm up. We can do this. <laughs> Tips the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randalls. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hello again, this is Dan Godby, Medical Editor of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Thank you for joining us for the Fall 2021 edition of the JSON Podcast. In this issue, I will again identify some articles worth reading that will not be covered by Josh and Alex in the podcast. First of all is a letter to the editor by some French colleagues about use of intranasal route for administration of ketamine. Next is the article by Paquette about the efficacy of commercial chest seal adherence and tension pneumothorax prevention. The next article is by Tin and is about chemical warfare agents in terrorist attacks. Finally, the article by Stein about caffeine gum does not improve marksmanship is both interesting and useful. We at the JSUM are always interested in hearing from our readership, especially those of you in the primary positions, and I'd like to reiterate our recently developed mentoring program specifically to help medics get through the publishing process. Now, as always, here's Josh and Alex with the podcast. <laughs> Alex, Alex, how you doing, man? It's It's been a while. How are you? Well, my friend, you know, it's been a rather self-reflective period of time, I think, with everything that's going on in the world these days. And I'm sure most of our listeners are probably of the same opinion between the uh, 20th anniversary of the attacks and um, for all of us in the community watching, hearing, and um, perhaps even being a part of the Kabul exfil. Um, you know, there's there's just a lot going on in the world, and it certainly made me appreciate the incredible work that special operations medics out there do when the the flare goes up for what they're able to accomplish. Especially, I think for the Kabul mass cal that hopefully everybody saw on that JTS phone call a couple of weeks ago. Um, just really incredible work. Um, our team actually presented a mass cal the week before from where we are out here. Much, much less impressive, but just really heartwarming to see the incredible work that incredible folks do for their brothers and sisters in arms. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to think that 9-11 was 20 years ago. A lot has changed. So Sure has, but for a not insignificant percentage of the current military, they weren't even born at the time which okay now crazy. stop that like now you're making me feel old. that's well why you got to do that to me dude that's messed up well as you and i were talking about before we started recording here uh, you and i have been running together and i can assure you that you are old oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well on that on that note i think we could we could sh- sh- we can shift our topics into some of the some of the uh the articles from the json this month yeah quarter. for sure edition 
something edition yeah edition cool well i think you've got the first one up what have you got for us this edition yeah so the first article that we're going to discuss is called blood product administration during transport throughout the u.s africa command theater of operation with authors dr stephen shower dr naylor dr fitcher and others and so they were looking to see how blood resuscitation is used in the entire AFRICOM theater of operations. And they looked at it as it was defined by the TRACES data repository. And if you don't know, TRACES is the system by which they use to move patients out of theater, but it's not a medical record system per se. It's more of an administrative system, which accumulates the data, assigns the missions and, and gets them moved. So they acknowledged that there was a gap in the literature, and that gap was there's little to no data on the use of blood in AFRICOM theater of operations. So they were looking in this TRACES database to see if they could answer that question of how, how blood is being used. And so their methods were as such is that they used a retrospective review of patient care reports entered into TRACES in the AFRICOM AOR from January 1, 2008, to December 31st, 2018. They had to search free text boxes that were used for patient history to try to find if these patients were given blood. They performed free text searches using the following terms, packed, red, cells, blood, whole, freeze, dried, plasma, and platelets. And they accumulated all these records and they essentially performed some uh, descriptive statistical analysis on that data. So their results. In their date range, there were 963 cases recorded in traces out of AFRICOM. Of those, 10 received blood products, which is a 1% of the total cases. Seven of those patients were due to trauma, three were medical, and one of those cases was a military working dog who had heat stroke, as an aside. You can read about the rest in the article. And when they broke down their groups a little further, there were of the seven patients who received blood products for traumatic injuries, five listed specific types of blood products transfused, which were five units of typo negative whole blood, 29 units of packed red blood cells, and nine units of fresh frozen plasma. Of these five subjects, only one received PRBCs and FFP in a one-to-one -one fashion. So what are some takeaways from this article? Because you, you read it and it seems that they just found that blood was given in Africa and we can't really identify much about it. But I think we need to look at it a bit deeper than that. And I think the first thing that we can take away from this is that their data source was kind of flawed. And they acknowledge this. Traces wasn't designed to pull data and study it. It's the only method they had of the time to try to find this information out. And I think that's one of the things that they bring out in their article as well, is that there needs to be a better way to track this data. CENTCOM had a very well-developed trauma system in place in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so it was very easy to find this data, track it, build research projects. But in AFRICOM, that doesn't exist. So they recommend that they there needs to be some system put in place in AFRICOM to try to better track this medical information. And with this data source, they only captured U.S. patients. So we don't really know if local nationals got blood, how much they got, and where they went. This number may be much higher, but it just wasn't captured in this data. The second takeaway is an operational lesson in that providing blood resuscitation for traumatically injured patients in non-developed 
theaters of operation requires planning. If you read into the article and you look at some of the patient cases, they had a hard time finding blood, sometimes having to even use local blood banks, which don't have the testing requirements that U.S. blood banks do, putting those patients at risk for transmissible diseases if they don't get tested for. So it is incumbent on us as medical providers and operational units to think how we're going to provide that blood be that through walking blood bank, having a supply chain set up prior. These are things we need to start thinking about. But those were my sort of takeaways. What did you think, Alex? Yes, and. So totally agree. I would say the couple of interesting points is we have actually been working with the Joint Trauma Service to start a a PI protocol looking at uh, blood use in this current theater of operations, because as these folks very correctly pointed out, there currently is no good mechanism for measuring that, comma, however, their tool that they used is also not very good either. Collecting a total of 10 patients in 10 years just does not give me any data that I think can actually draw reasonable conclusions. Uh, but other than that, yeah, man, you nailed it. And we're very excited this edition to welcome a new member to the team. Rico Pesci, who is a former medic with the Rangers, will be taking over and leading our guest editor section. Rico, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Alex and Josh. I'm very happy to be joining the team, and I'm excited to have Meredith Cole as my first guest medic reviewer. I had the pleasure of meeting her during the first wave of the pandemic in New York. She was a soft medic on active duty, and now she is studying at Columbia University, and she's also in the National Guard. So welcome, Meredith. Thank you for inviting me here, Rico. I'm very excited to be a part of this. Absolutely. Uh, What do you have for us today? Well, this is an original research paper titled Timeline of Psychologic and Physiologic Effects Occurring During Military Deployment on a Medical Team. There are few studies on the trends of mental health during deployments, and this paper hopes to evaluate changes during the deployment. For this article, the authors hypothesize that physiologic and psychologic health changes correlate with time for the deployed population. Well, that is certainly worth investigating. And what uh, methodology did they use? It's a retrospective analysis of daily measurements of weight, blood pressure, and pulse for the physiologic data, and the PHQ-9 questionnaire used to evaluate depression symptoms and their impact on each service member. All volunteers were on an active duty surgical team in a foreign country from January 2020 to July 2020, and they were assigned to SOCAF in a non-combat zone. The authors also looked at the amount of days each service member was in theater to see if there was a correlation in symptom change as time progressed. And what were the authors' conclusions? Well, one takeaway from this analysis was that increased days of deployment were a statistically significant predictor of an increase in the total depression score and severity of depression from the PHQ-9 questionnaire, with depression symptoms displaying a positive linear pattern while severity showed a quadratic pattern with respect to time. However, nearing the end of deployment, there was a statistical decrease in depression symptom severity, although symptom presence persisted. And interestingly, service members had a lower map as time passed. Also, the comparison of data gathered before a known combat casualty care event and after led to no significant difference. To wrap it up, the conclusion of this research was that there is a correlation between time and depression symptom frequency and severity. While symptom severity statistically decreased at the end of the deployment, it never returned to baseline. The authors suggested that reduced length of deployments and measuring effectiveness and timing 
of mental health interventions could lead to lower severity and lessened symptoms. Well, thank you for that summary. And uh, I was wondering what strengths you identified in this paper. So there were quite a few strengths in this paper, uh, one being that continuous screening throughout the entire deployment at twice a week led to more data to analyze. Um, additionally, they conducted both mental and physical screens to look for correlations. They used the PHQ-9, which is a validated external tool. And they did discuss the limitations of the study being that you know, the COVID-19 pandemic kicked off globally during the time in which they were in theater. Well, no article is perfect. So what are some weaknesses? So as with any article, there are a few weaknesses as well. While the design of the study is solid, it involves a really small cohort from the same team. So there's no external data to analyze and compare against even another surgical team within the same theater. So therefore it lacks breadth across military medical providers. It is underpowered and the authors mentioned this in the article. The non-specific questioning in the PHQ-9 could actually be related to other physiologic or somatic conditions. Also, there's no calculation of sample size. Therefore, we don't know if this is an effective sample size. There's, and there's no mention of primary and secondary outcomes. The researcher was involved in the small group, which could create some bias. And there's no generalizability in the Garter reserves for this study. So what are your takeaways for the paper? Well, I don't think this study is powerful enough to influence clinical change, but I can see it spurring interest in further evaluation of mental health during deployments. While shorter or longer deployments may lead to different trends, which is again mentioned by the authors, but due to the limitations of the study on the Statler-Walder scale, it falls middle of the road as a C and requires more studies with larger populations. Well, thank you for reviewing this paper for us, Meredith. Thank you, Rico. All right, Alex, what, do you, what article do you have this month? Article edition. Very excited this edition to reach out to some of our international partners. So I will be reviewing impact of a 10,000 meter cold water swim on Norwegian Naval Special Forces recruits with first author Jorgen Milau, Dr. Hisdal, and Dr. Solberg. So this group of authors identified that there was a lack of data about the impact that cold water swim had on special forces abilities to perform specific tactical and physical functions. And so they aimed to fill that gap with some data that they were able to prospectively collect. And specifically, they were looking at the impact of a long cold water swim on special operation recruit dexterity, performance, and reaction time. Their convenience sample included 11 recruits from the Norwegian Naval Special Operations Command who were doing a 10,000 meter open water swim with a dry suit in five degrees Celsius water, which sounds absolutely miserable. And then they measured a bunch of uh, physical and uh, biochemical parameters before, during, and after the study. So their measurements included a previously validated perceived recovery status scale, as well as uh, core temperatures and skin temperature that were measured through some interesting devices I'll let you read about in the manuscript. Uh, they also measured body mass, fat mass, and muscle mass. And then what I thought was interesting is they measured grip strength as well as lower body power, which was measured via a counter movement jump on a force plate. They also did a number of different uh, blood samples 
And then they had a measurement of dexterity by having these recruits put some nuts and bolts together. So their results were that the original cohort of 11 subjects got whittled down. They had uh, one subject who dropped before the swim and another that was pulled by cadre since they were a recruit. So they only ended up with uh, nine recruits. And what their results showed a moderate to large reduction in core temperature and lower body power and reaction time. They also noted large to extremely large reductions in skin temperature, grip strength, and dexterity. So in the author's conclusions, they note that a extended cold water swim does have a significant impact on performance. And this may warrant further impact in terms of planning for training, gear, or even operational planning in the future. So Josh, for this manuscript, remind me which quality assessment questionnaire will we be using? So we are looking at the critical appraisal of prognostic studies from the University of Oxford's Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. Are you ready? Man, those are a lot of fancy $100 words. Yeah, so send it. What you got? Just so everybody knows, what we're looking at essentially is that are the results of the study valid or its internal validity? So the first question is, was the defined representative sample of patients assembled at, at a common point in the course of their disease? I would say yes for this convenience cohort sample. Was the patient follow-up sufficiently long and complete? I would say in general, no. And the authors actually list this in the manuscript that they did not do a great job getting granular data after the participants came out of the water. They actually only did a minimal amount of sampling afterwards and then one more data point in 24 hours and not a continuous data collection. Were the outcome criteria either objective or applied in a blind fashion? Generally, yes, except for the subjective scale that the participants graded. And then you actually had a great question on one of the criteria that we'll be asking the author about here in a minute. If the subgroups with important prognosis are identified, did adjustment for important prognostic factors take place? I don't know that that's applicable to this um, what ended up being nine-person cohort of uh, trainees slash recruits. My takeaway from this paper, cold water sucks. And long-distance swimming in cold water sucks even more. And just so those of us here from the imperial system understand what we're talking about, this ended up being over a six-mile swim in water that was 41 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm sure you've done some diving in my time. I used to be a prolific dry suit diver on the West Coast where it is cold and miserable. And let me tell you, 41-degree water, which is what these guys are doing, that is just all sorts of awful. There is no fun way to do that. But you and I did have some questions for the author, and so we will get the privilege of asking him about some of those now. Well, Josh, to answer some of the questions we have about this manuscript, we were able to reach out to the first author, Jorgen Milau, and he is going to correct me on the pronunciation of his name. We're going to get some of the answers to some of our questions. Jürgen, welcome to the show. And 
please help me with the pronunciation of your name, if you would mind. Well, thank you for having me. My name is Jürgen Melo, but I think your pronunciation is uh, good enough. You are too kind, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. As we were chatting about before we started recording, I'm curious about what prompted your interest in this topic. Well, I have a background from the uh, armed forces in uh, Norway, and uh, after that I've been working for about 10 years in the air ambulance in uh, the northern part of Norway. And so that's um, in, the, in the northern part of Norway, it's very cold and I'm pretty used to cold patient and cold water and cold weather in general. That's, that's prompted my interest for, for this topic. Ah, got it. And of course, I think you left out one of many interesting parts from your background, which is your involvement with the safety team from the Norseman Triathlon. And for those listeners who are not familiar with it, it would definitely be worth looking up because it looks uh, maybe hardy or perhaps terrifying would be the appropriate word. Perhaps even a, a better descriptor of the Norseman. What's your assessment? Well, it is a hard race. It is a, a long distance triathlon like the Ironman on, uh, on Hawaii, but, uh, but it's much, much colder and uh, harsh uh, weather. So I've been the uh, director of the safety team and the medical team there for about 15 years. So uh, it's a pretty hard race, I would say. And do I remember reading a few years ago that you also mandate that it's an unsupported race? Uh, it's unsupported. The um, athletes have to bring their own support. That's right. Yeah. Well, for those folks who have had the privilege of working with our Scandinavian counterparts, sure can attest to your stout hardiness, and I think the Norseman is certainly no difference. But if we could segue into some of the questions that we had about your manuscript. Our first question is, we're used to seeing a single primary outcome with the possibility of multiple secondary outcomes in research questions. What prompted you to choose to have multiple primary outcomes in your study? Well, this was mainly due to our uh, or the previous research that has been done in uh, the uh, Norwegian uh, Naval Special Operations Community done by uh, Hamarsland and uh, also by one of my supervisors, Paul Solberg. So there was a need to see this from, uh, from uh, several di different perspectives. The capability of the special forces operators uh, are... Um, are obviously a consequence of combined factors. So due to that, we choose uh, several outcomes to uh, investigate how they would uh, perform in uh, cold water. All right, fair enough. And we were also wondering if you could help us by further explaining what the thought process was behind measuring the four specific biomarkers that you selected. Yeah, <laughs> this is also due to previous uh, research that has been uh, been done. Uh, by choosing these four specific biomarkers, it made it uh, much easier for us to compare data with with uh, other studies. Both we and others have done um, done uh, several studies where these biomarkers have been investigated in the special forces community, but also in uh, in triathlon. And as we have briefly mentioned already, I have a, a connection to 
to hard triathlon races. Uh, and it might sound a bit weird that we compared special operations to triathlon, but in, in my opinion, it's it's actually very relevant. But but I'm a bit biased uh, towards uh, towards uh, towards that. We also found that in your study, you mentioned one of the tests for dexterity is the test using washers, bolts, and nuts. But it doesn't appear that this method was previously validated. Well, this does make common sense as a good test. Where did you get this particular test, or was it previously validated? The test came actually from the um, from the special operations community themselves. The test is fairly well known to them from previous testing. However, that that being said, we were testing recruits, uh, so they were not familiar with uh, this uh, particular test, which, which is. Uh, essential because there is a training effect on the test that we have to control if we use it uh, a lot on on the same on the same subjects that being said i did a small informal <laughs> investigation uh, and it's a reasonable well-known test in the norwegian um, temperature physiology um, community it is not at least to my knowledge a validated test but the size of the nuts and the bolts are not standardized. Uh, but what I really like about the test is that it is so easy to understand for anyone reading the study. It's a very functional test. And as we've written in the paper, imagine, imagine coming out of the cold water and then using a... Um, uh, yeah, like a caving ladder or doing an assault climb, climb or, um, or handling a malfunction on your weapon. Uh, if your fingers are cold and you have a reduced manual dexterity, uh, it would be really, uh, really um, bad for the operation. So I think uh, the test, it's a really, really good uh, functional test and very easy to understand so that that is why we why we use it but to your direct question no it's not the validated test all right well that was a great answer there were so many good research points about there that it essentially is pre-validated within your community it directly applies to the endpoints you're looking at which is operations and also and I love the great nugget about preconditioning your subjects with pre-training. And then one of the other questions that we had from your manuscript is that you theorized that a decreased core temperature at 150 minutes might be related to exhaustion. Does other literature also show consistent exhaustion? No, it is not. Not to my knowledge, at least. Uh, and it is tough to compare since the conditions in different studies are variable but still there is uh, not a linear drop in core temperature in uh, this uh, present study and that is something we have seen in other studies uh, at a, a shorter with shorter duration uh, when using a wetsuit like uh, at least in the northern parts of uh, Europe, we use uh, wetsuit in the triathlons. Uh, there is a typical very linear drop in core temperature 
So I think it's a valid point to include in our discussion. But the 150 minutes mark, it's is certainly not an absolute, and we have no other literature to uh, to support uh, that. But um, but I, I still think it's a valid point to include in this discussions. Uh, however, we cannot make that solid conclusion on this, but it's probably depending on several factors and as we also have seen in some of our triathlon research and uh, these factors can be like um, intensity uh, water temperature uh, fit of the suit which is something that is very hard to measure uh, the fit of the dry suit or the uh, or, or even more important fit of a wet suit and it's also a function of what you wear under your dry suits and the gear you use and, and much, uh, much more. But to your, again, to your specific question, if you have literature that supports uh, like an exhaustion of these of, um, athletes at 150 minutes, no, we don't uh, have our literature supporting that. Well, that's fair and a very reasonable point. But I'm sure in your experience as a triathlete, you've certainly experienced exhaustion after a couple hours of uh, working hard. And so our last question for you is one that we often see in a number of manuscripts. Given that this is a small convenience cohort with no control group, do you think it's appropriate to make conclusions from your data? Or would it be more appropriate to consider this maybe more along the lines of a pilot study ahead of an appropriately sized experiment? Well, that, that's a hard, hard question to answer. The, the, the results from our study would be more consistent with more participants and, uh, and also less strain on the recruits uh, before the study. Uh, but we still think that the conclusion is appropriate. Uh, the results are consistent and we do not believe that the result will be much different with more participants. Still, we really want to do another study where we include a control group and only then we can differ if the effect of a falling core temperature is from uh, um, from uh, impact of uh, exhaustion as uh, discussed in the uh, discussed in the previous uh, questions uh, and I also have to mention that this study is done in close, of course, done in the close uh, cooperation with the Norwegian Naval Special Forces. And so a vital part for us is that uh, we do not interfere with the training in any way. Uh, the community is small and valuable, so, so the, uh, the training needs to go as planned without, uh, without us uh, intervening in their, uh, in their training. So this is not like a study that uh, we has uh, planned um, like a research project in the normal uh, sense of a research project. We come to the community and uh, just <laughs> hang on to, the, to their uh, daily training, to, so to speak. We really want to do uh, another study where we include a con control group. In that sense, um, we could consider this a, a, a pilot study. Um, so we'll see what the, what the future will, will bring to us. I'm not sure how we, will, how we will progress with this, but I really hope we can do it. 
Again, what a great point you bring up that you're doing a model to look at the entire population and you expect that your model that you've already done probably very closely mirrors the entire population that you're studying. In that case, there might not need to be further studies. Jurgen, again, thank you so much for your time, insight, great manuscript of the journal, the work you've done in the past, and all the great future work that we expect from you and your colleagues. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's another wrap. I'm sure at least your mom and mine probably listened to the whole show. So for uh, the two of you, thank you so much. For everyone else, don't forget that the Special Operations Medical Association Scientific Assembly call for proposals is open and will be closing on Monday, October 11th. So head on over to their website and please, please put in your submissions for proposals, uh, labs, posters, whatever you want. The audience is you and the presenters should be you. Um, we've got a couple of projects that hopefully will get picked up next year at the conference and would love your help. So if you have any interest in helping out there, please feel free to reach out to us, podcast at jsomonline.org. So to mom, thanks for listening. And to everybody else, also thanks for listening. Alex, we'll, uh, we'll talk again later, I'm sure. Right on, brother. Be safe out there. Yeah, Don't man. take ivermectin. <laughs> okay. <laughs>